I really want corporate America, small business America, whatever it might be, find a way to make your hiring practices more inclusive. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Mori. A Jewish Zen master Buddhist and two ice cream makers go for a walk in the woods. Sounds like the setup for a joke, but this now infamous walk gave life to a delicious collaboration with an astounding social impact. This is one of those interviews that makes you question if and how you'll ever do enough in your own life, not in a depressing way, in a way that makes you question what's possible. Joe Kenner is the CEO of Grayston Bakery and the nonprofit entity that helps support its efforts. Many of you, whether you realize it or not, have probably come across Grayston's products, at least if you like ice cream. Their brownies appear in several of the most classic and popular Ben & Jerry's ice cream flavors, the result of, well, a walk in the woods. We talk with Joe about Grayston's fascinating origin story, the amazing brownies the bakery turns out each and every day to the tune of 40,000 pounds, and what makes this operation so very unique. It's one of those incredible stories that will restore your faith in humanity and make you wonder what is possible when you hear the lengths that Grayston goes to to help its community and serve those in need by offering them employment, dignity, and mobility. Hey, it's Jed Mori, CEO of Mori Creative Studios, executive producer of Social Justice Podcast, Newsbeat, and the host of Grow for Good. Today, I am extremely fortunate to be joined by Joseph Kenner, CEO of Grayston. And as you heard in the introduction, Grayston is just a tiny little neighborhood bakery in Yonkers. No big deal. A little shop that pumps out 40,000 pounds of deliciousness every single day, distributes it to little companies like Whole Foods and all while impacting thousands of people in their community on a daily basis. So this should be kind of a breeze here. <laughs> Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. So before we get into your journey and some of the details of the business, um, can you just give our listeners a brief overview of the company itself? Yeah, so Grayston, we are just about 40 years old. We've been in uh, Southwest Yonkers for almost 40 years. We started in 1982. And I'll give you a little sense of the DNA of the company. It was founded on a very simple but profound idea by our founder, Bernie Glassman, and that was to alleviate poverty in Southwest Yonkers. Uh, so that's going to be something that threads throughout our conversation is, you know, how do we tackle this issue? But um, to, to your intro, we have a for-profit bakery, uh, Grayston Bakery, which is the first benefit corporation in New York State, by the way, uh, owned by uh, Grayston Foundation, which is our nonprofit that provides uh, workforce development and community wellness programming to the residents here in Southwest Yonkers. Our key distinction, though, in, in addition to the DNA of our founding in terms of alleviating poverty, is how we actually hire people, uh, particularly at the bakery. And it's based on this you know, principle of, you know, how can we give hope to folks? How can we give opportunity, particularly employment opportunity to folks, in a way that is non-judgmental, in a way that respects them, it shows compassion, and it gives them hope for the future. So tomorrow is going to be better than today. And this practice that we have is called open hiring. And what it means essentially is all folks have to do is put their name on a list uh, to work at the bakery. And when the next job becomes available, you get it. No questions asked, no background checks. We don't do interviews. Uh, and that in, in and of itself gives folks hope that, you know what, I may not get it tomorrow, but at some point in time, I will have a job. I'll get that call and to me, that is the most fulfilling part of the job is giving folks at least that hope that they could get called because it could be anywhere from six months uh, before you get the call, but it's there. It's guaranteed that yeah. we will call you. And if you're available, we're looking forward to having you come work with us. So we're going to talk a lot about that a little later in the show. Um, you've also been the, the beneficiary and for good reason of a lot of press around that concept for many, many years. And yet yeah. still, it's very unique, but there are reasons why this time in this place, I feel like it's kind of found its moment and has more people looking at it. So I definitely want to dig into that. But before that, you've got a pretty fascinating journey on your own. <laughs> a, I'm massively educated. You have uh, incredible degrees. 
you spent many, many years in corporate America, yes. uh, from insurance to finance. Um, you and are I'm still here. You're, and so that's, <laughs> that's the thing. You're still there. But I'm curious, like who found whom in this process? Was Grayston on your radar as you were making it through corporate America? Was it something that you aspired to or was it happenstance? You know, I tell the story and I, I've told the story like to business school students. All of the jobs, I can say this quite frankly, like all of the jobs that I've had since I graduated from college, I did not know they existed when I started college. So, you know, I was at a you mentioned I was in corporate America, you know, 14 years in corporate America, Wall Street. You know, I was an insurance underwriter for financial institutions. I did, you know, sales strategy for PepsiCo, uh, risk management at PepsiCo. I was in government for 10 years. None of this, none of these things were on top of mind for me when I first uh, got into college and definitely didn't know what a social enterprise was or a benefit corporation was. But, you know, you know, God has a way of revealing things to you along the way. And, you know, all of those jobs prepared me for where I am now. The story goes, I met my predecessor. Oh, boy, it had to be 2015, 2016. Um, he was a keynote speaker for one of a, a conference I used to organize as part of a New York fathering planning conference. Mike Brady was our speaker. Uh, he introduced us to this whole idea of open hiring, which we just thought was an amazing concept. At that time, I was the deputy commissioner for social services for Westchester County. I thought it was amazing. I just had never heard of this concept. I thought it was great, particularly for the people that we served in Westchester County Social Services. It opens the door of opportunity to be self-sufficient and give you a future in private communities. It was, it was an amazing thing. Never thought that I would one day be working there. Uh, it was the following year where I asked Mike Brady to have some of his folks come back to our conference and be a uh, workshop presenter. And he says to me, yes, I can get you some folks from workforce development. And oh, by the way, I'm looking for a VP of programs and partnerships to uh, workforce. If you know of anybody, let me know. I didn't know what a program and partnerships <laughs> VP did, <laughs> just to be very honest with you. I had no clue what it did. But when I looked it up, uh, went online and looked it up, I shared it to my wife. It was like, you know, business background, financial background, social services background, um, you know, connections <laughs> to the government. And I could not have written a better job description. Uh, so I looked, showed it to my wife, and she's like, you could do this. And I was like, yeah, I could do this. So I called up Mike, and, you know, as they say, you know, the rest is history. So February 2018, I started as the VP of Programs and Partnerships at Grayston. And again, never would have thought, you know, almost two years later, I'd be appointed CEO of this organization, which is so incredible. So forget about the 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 fact that you I mean you really did have every requisite skill and background necessary for that job. Do you think that your time in public service tuned you to this job in a way that you might not have been as prepared or as willing to jump into it had you gone straight from corporate America into uh, a, a, a mission driven organization? You know, I would say all of my jobs, really, I, I would not sell short any of the experiences that I've had, whether it was corporate America, Wall Street, government, elected office, appointed office, they all prepared me. And I'm leveraging all the learnings that I've gained from those positions uh, throughout my life. And I'm using them to this very moment today. I think what really prepares you, particularly for a job at Grayston or any type of a mission-minded, purpose-driven company, is you 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 have to want to believe in elevating humanity through business. You, that's just part of, you call it conscious capitalism, you could call it stakeholder capitalism. But to be here, it's not just about the business. That is as important as elevating humanity. And for us, it's employment opportunity. It's giving folks that uh, bite at the apple in terms of being a part of the, the working mainstream, and, uh, building a future for yourself, for your family. Uh, that's very much a part of us, as is the bottom line. So you mentioned somebody before that's the founder, uh, Bernie Glassman. Yeah. Um, what's, what's interesting about that is, you know, in, in our culture, we sort of use the term Zen master as a throwaway and or for <laughs> Phil Jackson. Like that's it. That's, that's the extent of what most people know about it. But Bernie Glassman was an actual Zen master yes. from Buddhist philosophy and started a business that has now thrived for many, many years. Can you just tell us a little bit about that man? Well, my biggest regret is I never got a chance to meet him. 
because he passed away the November of my first year in 2018. And, you know, I love telling the story about him. It's like, you know, it all sounds like a bad joke. You know, it's like, you know, the Jewish guy from Brooklyn, aeronautical engineer, social entrepreneur, starts this company baking brownies. It's like, how does that all come together? (laughs) It's like, how does this all come together? He was, he was a true entrepreneur. I mean, it's just nothing. Nothing could fail. Like he would try anything. And, you know, this group that he was a part of, uh, there was a Zen Buddhist community, as you mentioned, they lived in the uh, Riverdale section of the Bronx um, in the Grayston Mansion, which is where we got our name. And they would support themselves baking cakes. And, you know, this, you know, early 80s, uh, Bernie saw the condition uh, at that time, the economy was just, you know, in dire straits, the early 80s, as you can recall, high unemployment, homelessness. You know, at that time, AIDS was raging. And he would notice that a lot of people could not work for a host of different issues, you know, different barriers, whether it was, you know, formerly incarcerated, justice involved somehow, recovery issues, um, AIDS, homelessness, whatever it might be. And he's, you know, he said to this, you know, how can we change this? How can we eradicate poverty in Southwest Yonkers? And he would literally pull people off the streets. Hey, you want to work? We'll teach you something, teach you a skill, give you, you know, a resume, <laughs> build your resume a little bit, but you'll learn something that you could possibly use somewhere else. That was the genesis for open hiring. Unbelievable. Literally just trying to figure out how do we deal with poverty in Southwest Yonkers. And from there, it grew into this, uh, relationship with Ben and Jerry's. You forgot to mention them. You mentioned Whole Foods. But uh, mm-hmm. Ben and Jerry's is another amazing story of you know, Bernie going to one of the first you know, social venture uh, conferences. I believe it was in Colorado. But um, literally went on a, a walk in the woods with uh, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. And they just kind of talked about, you know, how can we work together? We've got this ice cream operation. You've got this baking thing going. You know, what can we do? And they decided that, you know, maybe, you know, we can make, we, Grayston, can make the chocolate cake for ice cream, ice cream sandwiches. And everybody loves this story. So, you know, Bernie, we had no expertise in any of this. This is the entrepreneur madness at work. No expertise in this whatsoever. Invested all of our money into this new uh, production. Uh, shipped it over. Shipped the product to Vermont for these ice cream sandwiches. Fortunately, they didn't survive the shipping process. So instead of getting these little sandwich cookies, you get like a big slab of chocolate stuff. <laughs> that didn't work. But someone at Ben & Jerry's was like, let's put it in the chocolate ice cream. And from there, you get chocolate fudge brownie. Ben & Jerry's I mean. ice cream. I mean, come on. And from there, four other flavors come into being, you know, half-baked, you know, Brownie Batter Core, Justice Remix, Netflix and Chill, that's our latest. (laughs) And it's all this serendipitous moment of... uh, There's a lot of heroes in that story, (laughs) but the one real true hero might be the guy in receiving that's like, whoa, 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 throw this out. Let's just chip it up and put put it into the ice cream. Uh, But yeah, the the relationship has thrived even during this pandemic. Uh, It's been quite a headwind for us with uh, being a part of uh, Ben & Jerry's Unilever's global supply chain. A lot of people are snacking all over the world. So Yes, we are. And I like to say, you know, during the pandemic, you know, our manufacturing facility was deemed essential. So we never stopped running. Mm. Um, And it's an amazing story to say, like, folks that were once deemed unemployable are now essential. Essential. (laughs) Oh, I love it. And I working, and literally working every day. We were 24-6. You know, we worked on July 4th. We worked on Memorial Day, uh, just churning out. You know, this was a record year in terms of volume, you know, over 45,000 pounds of brownies a day being churned out by folks said were unemployable or couldn't mm-hmm. work here. But they did an amazing job and very proud of the work that the team has done. Well, let's zoom out for a second and talk about that corporate structure then, mm-hmm. um, because you do have the uh, the nonprofit arm, the foundation as a holding company for the bakery itself. But the bakery came first. So yes. when did the idea to to have that holding company, to have the nonprofit come into play? Because you do have a dual role. You stand as CEO mm-hmm. for both organizations. When did that come about? And what was the purpose behind that? Yeah, so it was later in the 90s. So so again, this is Bernie, the entrepreneur, the thinker. Um, he saw as we were doing open hiring that you know our employees had other needs. 
uh, housing was a need, childcare was a need, just training in general was a need. So there was a time where we had low income housing. We had an early learning center. Um, we continue to this day to have uh, a housing facility for folks with HIV AIDS. And but we also have workforce development. So he saw that there were other wraparound services that we could provide or should provide to our employees because at the end of the day, it's not just about employing folks. That's the first step. The second step is just how do we make sure that folks can be successful in the job and really successful in life? You're talking about childcare and housing. Like I, I'm not going to be fully productive for you. It's not going to be a successful relationship if I'm worried about if I'm going to be evicted or if I'm sleeping in my car or I can't get childcare arrangements. How can we support you in that journey? So we were doing all of those things. We've, we're slowly getting out of a lot of that and focusing only on the bakery operation and workforce development, but we can form the partnerships within the community with the other nonprofits that can provide those services to our employees to make sure that they could still be just as productive in work as they can at home because they're getting childcare issues addressed. We're dealing with a, a housing issue, recovery issue, whatever it might be, domestic violence, all of those kind of non-traditional, I think, HR issues. We want to make sure that they get addressed so that our folks are can bring their whole selves to work and be both successful professionally as well as personally. Probably a few, I think it was five or six years ago, we established a partnership with Westchester Jewish Community Services to provide what we call an employment pathmaker. It's that person's job. It's a social worker, care coordinator is the technical term that sits at our bakery actually and deals with all those issues I just mentioned. Uh, working in tandem with our human resources manager, director there. But helping our folks through all those issues in a very confidential way so that, you know, folks don't feel like, you know, their business is all over the company. But Who employs sure that person? We, it, it's a relationship we have with Westchester Jewish Community Services. It's, it's an, they're an employee of WJCS, but we have an MOU with them so that the, we pay for the role, but the person sits at our facility. That's brilliant. It's, it's, it's amazing innovation. It's worked out very well. We have access to their clinics, access to their programming, even throughout this whole pandemic as folks have been losing family members. They've provided grief counseling to our, to our staff. And I would say it's not just for the open hiring employees. It's for the staff. Anybody can use this person. Anybody can access this person. And to me, and I've been saying this for a long time now, this is the evolution of human resources. Like, how do you make sure people can feel safe in their work environment? How can you make sure that folks have these types of resources so that they don't have to worry about all the other things that are happening outside of the job? You know, what's interesting is that somebody, and, and you, so you have a background in risk yes. and risk management and risk adjustment. And corporate America is so has such a, a natural proclivity these days to managing everything through the lens of risk. Mm -hmm. And yet, even with that background and even with that general sense in America, you have something that is almost the antithesis of looking at risk base from what the corporate risk is by alleviating the risks that are on the, the personnel side. That's it's just right. a next level of thought that I don't, I, even doing this show, you know, I don't. I don't think that we have many people that have even scratched the surface of how deep into this you guys are. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, and coming from corporate, it's not just managing the risk, but it's it's having that certainty. Folks like that certainty, but for me, it's look at the facts. You know, we've been doing this for forty years now, almost forty years, and we quantified the impact that we've had over the last year between the people we employ at the bakery. The people that we find, uh, we train and find jobs for at the foundation, you know, $11, $12 million of impact every year. When you think about the savings from public assistance, savings from justice involvement, the income that's generated, this is all going into Southwest Yonkers. 80% of the folks at the bakery come from Southwest Yonkers, or Yonkers. That's huge. That's economic development. That's workforce development, right? 95% of our open hires are people of color. And 76% of the staff actually are people of color. Uh, so there is just a lot of activity that's taking place here. And I hate to say checking the box, but it's having an impact on all those areas. You know, it's racial inequity, whether it's workforce development, economic development, and you know, at the same time, running a good business. Yeah, you know, you talk about quantifying these measures, and, and uh, I want to make sure in the show notes that we include a link 
to your recent impact statement, because what struck me about going through the statement was how, in what detail you were able to quantify the impact, not just within uh, the employment structure of the organizations that you run, but also in the greater community. And in, you know, so many of the corporate impact statements that you see in the world are really performative. And I don't mean to denigrate anybody's efforts towards that because many people in corporations are, you know, have, have gone through an awakening, particularly this year. And we'll talk mm. about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and they're putting their first best foot forward, but you don't put it forward by putting together a statement at the end of your first year and say, you know, this, you know, we did it. You have 40 years of impact to stand on and accruing benefits to a community. And I think if anybody was, is looking for a guide for what a great impact statement looks like, uh, it would be Grayston. So I think it's, it's a phenomenal document. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would say, too, one of the things, you know, not too long after I was appointed in April, you know, we had the George Floyd incident, and obviously we were at the height of the pandemic. And as everybody's issuing their statements and their uh, – you know, well wishes and I see you and all of these other kinds of comments. I was thinking about, you know, what is my statement going to be? And as I wrote the statement for Grayston, it, it was very clear to me, like, this is why we were founded. We don't need a statement. <laughs> what we yeah, do, no, you, you, you <laughs> what do the we work. Do, we were, we, and we've been doing the work. It's yeah. who we are. Um, if anything, we need to double down on what we're doing and talk about open hiring and talk about how it opens the door of opportunity to other folks who are on the sidelines. And we're seeing it now exacerbated during this whole pandemic and some of the inequities that are being laid bare. So we're doing it and we have been doing it. And the goal, the vision long-term is let's have others step up to the plate and put the money where their mouth is and actually say, you know, we want to do this too. Maybe not on the same scale, maybe on the same scale, maybe even mm-hmm. larger, but how can other companies rethink their human resources practices? How can they rethink how they bring people into their organizations? So before we leave corporate structure, one thing that I'm curious about, because it might be something that other larger mission organizations could learn from when you set up that nonprofit in the 90s, I think you said, right? Yeah. One of the things that that does is it gives you the ability to raise public funds. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of corporations doing really, like we spoke in the beginning of the show, we talked about uh, Bombas Socks, and we had a, mm-hmm. a couple of really amazing companies on the show. I imagine that having that extra company ability to go out and raise some of those public sector funds that are there and available for funds to be put to use almost immediately, which is what you've demonstrated on the yes. corporate side of things, that's got to be a really significant tool in your arsenal. Yeah, and it, it adds to the impact. So there's the great open hiring impact work that's happening on the bakery and the for-profit side, but obviously more resources are needed to drive the work that's happening from the workforce development and we have what we call the Center for Open Hiring, which is our thought leadership platform to see open hiring replicated throughout this this country, throughout the world, really. Uh, we have some work going on in the Netherlands. But we need to see that piece grow even larger. And mm-hmm. what's been great this past year is the folks that have been coming on board in Rochester, here in our own backyard, uh, supporting that effort because they're seeing it. And they're making connections to Black Lives Matter. They're making connections to the things that are happening in the, through the pandemic. Uh, and it's resonating with them. It's like, yes, we have to do something. And you guys seem to have found the secret sauce from an employment standpoint. That's where the field we're going to play in. Uh, we want to support that. So Obviously, we it's all about raising the funds to continue to drive that effort. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work and all of the crunching of the numbers, those that requires resources, the marketing to talk about uh, all the work that we're doing from a PR standpoint that requires resources so that more folks can know about this and do this, try it. And that's what I always say is just try open hiring. Maybe it's just the one job. You don't have to do it the way we do it, but at least test it out and see how it works. But at the end of the day, you know, there are still folks that need work and we want to make sure that we train folks, give them national certifications for the folks that aren't working at the bakery and put them into jobs that are emerging industry jobs. I mean, most of our uh, the on average, our average placement's about 27 to 30% above the New York state minimum wage. Mm. Um, so this is where, again, folks that were deemed not employable are starting out on a solid footing. 
And the thing I should also mention is, you know, on average, you know, our bakers make about 15, 16%, 17% above a study that MIT did in terms of the livable wage. We make 15, 16% above that. That is incredible. So you mentioned that you were the first B Corp in, in New York State. Yeah. Uh, and our listeners are familiar with B Corp because we talk about it a lot. Now, I don't think you were there for the original certification, but you've definitely been at the helm during the recertification yes, yes. process. Yes. What is it about that B Corp journey that is important to you? Because unlike a company like ours that is striving to get there and learning new things along the way, they could have written the B Corp structure around the company mm-hmm. that you already were. Why was that important to you, and, and what does it do for you and for your employees? It's a seal of approval of the journey that we're all on as B Corps, as purpose-driven companies, in terms of the, the triple bottom line, so the social, the environmental, and obviously the fiscal, but also the transparency, um, talking about our impact that we're having in the community, and talking about you know how we can be better, which is, and I know you're going through this process too, I mean, it's a very thorough process to become B Corp certified, and you don't get 100 in terms of perfect score. So you're always looking at, okay, maybe it's in the area of environment where our score could be higher. What can we do next year or the next time around to be better? Or it's in the social. What can we do to be better next year? But it's always, it raises a high bar for all of the folks in the B Corp in terms of how can we demonstrate to the world, to our stakeholders that we're doing the right thing by our people, by the communities that we're in, the communities that we serve, and obviously by the bottom line, because uh, you can't do the stuff that we do if we're not running a successful business. So it's very important for us in terms of having that be that seal of approval, and, and but also how can we be better in the long term? Do you find that your team is engaged with the with the process that they're challenged and and they get excited about like checking that next box and saying? Yeah. Is there an ownership, I guess, an agency in the process that they have? The beauty of the employees, and we were were just going through a branding exercise, and I was asking the people, like, you know, why did you come to Grayston? That's really why people come here. And honestly, that's why I want you here, (laughs) because you want to do those things and you want to hold us accountable, because we're not perfect. Uh, Having a B Corp certification doesn't mean you're a perfect company, but it does say something about your mission. It does say something about your values, and folks cling to that. And I think 99% of the folks that came here, they were like, you know, I want to have an impact in my community. You know, I want to be a part of something other than just making a product, which is world-class product, but there's more to my job than that. And that's why people come here. So in our other life, the, the first podcast that we launched is a social justice podcast called Newsbeat. And one of the pillars that we have is to study and uh, report on mass incarceration and all mm-hmm. of the, I guess, all of the tributaries that stem from it from a social perspective and what happens to communities that are ravaged by mass incarceration. And here you are, with this open hiring philosophy and strategy that has worked, you've demonstrated that it works. I think I read in your in your impact report that just this open hiring policy yields thirty thousand dollars in public yeah. savings annually per employee. Yeah. The social, economic, and community impact of a philosophy and a strategy like this, I think, can't be overstated. So I'd I'd like to hang on it for a little bit. And also humanize it without obviously giving up names or anything like that. But from a narrative perspective and a story perspective, it's not just the would-be or formerly incarcerated individual that we're talking about. It's all of the structures surrounding that person and the opportunities that come with it. Can you speak a little bit about the broader impact that comes along with this open hiring philosophy? Yeah, and, and I would and just to correct the narrative, because a lot of folks kind of associate us with only focusing on the justice involved, the formerly incarcerated, though the model lends itself very well to that particular population because we don't do background checks and we don't do uh, interviews. It's really for anybody looking for an opportunity. Someone with barriers to employment, we quantified that number as well, and it's about 10 million folks across this country who fall into that category. And and again, it's the people I mentioned before, uh, homeless, you know, people just can't get childcare. You know, single mom that, you know, can't work because 
who's going to take care of her child? Uh, yes, the, the formerly incarcerated person who just came home and has applied to 10 different jobs and just can't get one. We have people like that that I know personally um, that had that issue, and now they're doing very well. But it's really about anybody who is just, they've dropped out. <laughs> they've yeah. dropped out of, these are the people that aren't captured in our unemployment numbers, which are already high. But if you add back those folks, you know, our unemployment rate, which I think is just over six, it would probably go to 10 because of all the folks that have dropped out of the labor force because they just can't get a job now. It's for those folks who have lost hope, who've given up. Um, and that can be anybody. It really can. Um, but the beauty of our system is, you know, you could put your name on the list and, six months' time, get a job. That's the point of open hiring. It gives that opportunity to the folks who want to have made a decision. You've resolved, I want to be successful, but I had these other issues in my life and I just can't get a job. And you think about all of the things that are stacked against individuals from for-profit credit score companies that you know artificially construct who you are on mm-hmm. paper before anybody gets an opportunity to look at the person themselves all the way to somebody who might be formerly incarcerated or somebody who might not have had the opportunity to be educated. These are all things that are part of the social fabric that, that hold people back from getting into the workforce. And one of the things that you did was by eliminating that was you opened up people's minds to the possibility mm-hmm. that this can be a productive workforce if we just stop looking at those metrics and start looking at the person themselves. We think about it in terms of accessibility as well. You know, in our world in digital marketing, web accessibility is is an enormous issue right now because now that world has gone remote and gone fully digital and everything is online, what type of access are we ensuring that people have to be able to function in a normal economy? So you see these things all around. There's another layer to what you're doing in the Yonkers community where of the population served. I think that now we're talking about the mission side of the business, more mm-hmm. on the organization side. Mm-hmm. Three quarters of the the population are African American. I think a quarter per, uh, yeah. quarter are Hispanic. Of the outreach that is done within the community itself, and these are people that have nothing to do with the bakery. Yeah, these are through other programs meant to support the larger community. Yeah, in and around this concept of Grayston. But can you talk about some of those programs, what they look like, and how you get people involved? Yeah. So, and what's great about all of these, whether it's the bakery or the programs, a lot of these, it's all word of mouth. Like We don't do a major marketing exercise to talk about the jobs or the and the training opportunities that are available. Uh, so I'll start with workforce development. That is a program we have that provides uh, nationally recognized certifications in the area of occupational training. So security guard, customer service, you know, building and construction, say safety, things like that. Emerging industries that provide a nice entry point for folks to get started, but also has a nice career path as they move along and become successful. That's very important to us and obviously has a good starting wage that can become a livable wage for folks. We provide that type of training, but we also provide, you know, what people might call soft skills or essential skills. Um, it's the how do you interview? How do you deal with conflict? How do you dress for an interview? How do you write a resume? We provide those services to the folks, uh, to the, our Southwest Yonkers residents for free. I mean, this is all through our grants and other private support. That's one way for us to contribute to the community. And again, I always say employment is what we do. So that's the area where that's our sweet spot. That's who we can, that's how we can support this community through employment. But we also have, you know, 12 community gardens throughout Southwest Yonkers where Folks in these individual communities are growing their own fresh fruit, uh, fruit and vegetables to support that particular community. And that program is probably 95, 98% uh, Hispanic. That's a strong uh, Latino population there. But it's a way for folks to have a, you know, generate a little social capital, but also feel safe and provide food for their family. So it's addressing the food insecurity issue. And finally, I mentioned this before, but the Center for Open Hiring is really our platform for seeing this model be replicated in different contexts uh, around the country. And we're working with a nonprofit in the Netherlands and uh, Europe uh, called the Start Foundation. They have 21 open hiring pilots going over there across different industries. So it's amazing to see all of this stuff happening and uh, the impact that folks are having. Literally hundreds of jobs every year, we get to generate opportunities for folks to restart their lives and uh, 
build, start building towards a thriving community for themselves and their families. So I couldn't, I couldn't be happier for the work that we're doing day in and day out. So before we move to more operational questions about the business, I just want to touch a little bit on, uh, it, there were two seminal events in 2020 that carry forward today. Um, yeah. Obviously, one is the social uh, unrest, mostly in the wake of George Floyd's murder. But in the larger context, we saw so many examples of this that finally kind of bubbled over. That was just sort of, I think, what what broke loose and put it on everybody's map and, and forced many you know corporations, families, individuals to just turn around and say, okay, we have to talk about this. We have to face this. And at the same time, obviously, the global pandemic, which had a disproportionate effect on BIPOC populations within the United States for many, many, many reasons. Uh, without getting into those reasons, let's just say that these things were enormous challenges for yeah. uh, the Black and Latinx communities. And this is your community that you serve. But also, as you said, you know, 75% of the population within the walls of Grayston, you know, working there uh, are reflected in, in those numbers. What were the internal conversations like? Did you find yourself as CEO of the organization having to take maybe uh, more of a prominent role as listener and leader and just talking about and to and listening to people? Was it different, do you think, for Grayston than it was for some others in 2020? I'll actually say the pandemic challenged me. My style is more listener. I am going to be the guy that walks around, go to your office, sit in your office, chat, see people. I couldn't do that mm. <laughs> in this environment. So it was a very much a Zoom and Teams-oriented environment. But just to give you a sense, it was tough. It really was. We were in transition because there was a point where we we had we did not have a president and CEO yet. I wasn't appointed until April. But uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of anxiety. People were scared. You know? yeah. They were scared for themselves, for their family. Folks didn't understand what does it mean that we're essential? Why is it this business essential and we're essential? It was tough. And I said this during the whole ordeal. is like, this is when you get to see who your leaders are. Again, I could not have been more proud of our, our VP, GM, Rich Jamesley, who runs our bakery, our human resources team that really kept that team together, especially because those folks were coming to work every day. Because mm. at one point in time, 20 million of their fellow citizens didn't have a job. <laughs> and they were coming, they were scared, but the conversations we were having to your question was, all right, how do we keep these folks safe? Because we didn't have a playbook. So right. it was retrofitting both the foundation, because there were a couple of programs that were deemed essential as well at, the, at our nonprofit that had to continue running. So it was retrofitting both organizations, just checking in on folks to see how they're doing. Again, Zoom, cell phone, whatever it might be. Uh, I made the point of coming to work, um, even though I probably wasn't, probably wasn't supposed to be here. But I, I did come to work just to show that, you know, we're all in this together. Uh, I, I value the working from home concept, but sometimes you just got to, folks need to see you and at least see you coming to work because we, at one point in time, we stopped all interaction between the foundation and the bakery employees because we just didn't want, we, did, we, didn't, we didn't know how this thing was spreading. So we just limited all contact with the bakery, but we connected uh, on, on the social platforms. It was tough. That was the toughest part of all of this it was just, trying to stay cohesive. And I'd send out, you know, almost, I don't know if it was weekly, but it was pretty you know, regular. I would just send out emails, just kind of creating a positive environment, just getting folks to kind of think about, you know, their their fellow colleagues, uh, how folks are processing this differently. Because uh, folks, you know, like I said, were nervous, they were panicky, and sometimes we just have to step back. You know, that colleague of yours who might seem like they're freaking out, they might be worried about, their elderly parent. They might be worried about their kid. They might be worried about themselves. So trying to teach us to just understand each other's story a little bit better and how we might process things differently and not assume the negative right away, but kind of help each of us through this ordeal, which we made, we did make it through. And Talk about trial by fire. Do you think it made you a better CEO? A better person, uh, but definitely a better leader uh, because you that's the part of, and I was told this again during my Pepsi days, you know, your technical skills kind of become less important as you move up. <laughs> and then when you get to this point, 
in your career. It's really about people. It's, it's about relationships, how you can navigate the different uh, personalities in a team, on a leadership team, on your employee base. Uh, you really have to understand that. And you've got to have a very good sense of self and understand like what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I was very clear with the team. I do not like talking to you via Zoom. I'd rather have a town hall where I could see you, <laughs> I could mm-hmm. shake your hand, but I'm going to try this thing out. I, I don't think I'm still that good at it, but it's, it's what we have available to us. But yeah, it's taught me so much about myself. And, and I'll say this, you know, I w- it wasn't COVID that really threw me for a loop. It was really making sure the people were safe. That was really the thing that kept yeah. me up at night. Yeah. Let's get into the business because you're also in a fun, really cool business. When you take <laughs> all the rest of it away, you make really delicious brownies. Yes. I mean, really delicious brownies. In in doing the research. Uh, What's the your research, favorite? <laughs> uh, well, actually, so I knew your vegan brownies. Yes. And what's interesting about that is that, uh, so we have a few vegan members of, of our team. And so it's just, they're just sort of a thing. They're just, I just know them. Uh, we have a Whole Foods down the street. It's kind of what we eat and it's fun. But I was in doing the uh, research, um, Sage, who's also a vegan, who's the, gave us, who was very excited about bringing, obviously, this, what we call a get, <laughs> that we actually got you, which is huge. When she was doing the research, one of the things she included in it was another podcast, and it was a vegan podcast. I can't remember the name, forgive me. But it was funny because the uh, the host introduced it, and she was just going on and on about the, the brownies and saying how excited she was to interview you. And she's like, and then I started researching the company. I was like, oh, my God, this is the greatest company ever. Yeah. And it's funny where people's entry point, it can be so different. Some people might know you through open hiring, <laughs> through the community. But the bottom line is you make really, really, really delicious brownies. Yeah. So That just, was vegan, sexy, cool with Jackie Reed. Yes, yes that's exactly <laughs> it. That's the one. So the product itself, what I wanted to talk to you about is – you're 40 years in the business now. You've taken over as CEO. One of the things that you that your company has managed to do is actually maintain extreme focus. It is extremely unusual that you have not branched out, that you don't have cookies, that you don't have pots and coffee <laughs> mugs and branded collateral <laughs> items. And to me, it's one of the great lessons of business that sometimes you have to have that extreme focus. What do I do the best? So if you can, first of all, brag about your brownies for a little bit. And let's <laughs> talk about your product, but let's also talk about this concept of, a, of extreme focus and just staying in that lane because there have to have been times over the years where people were tempted to kind of veer off into other lanes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I said at the beginning, we used to make cakes. We, we used to make cookies, and a lot of those businesses were not profitable. <laughs> so we eventually got out of them. But you know what we do very well, and we're actually going to be having an offsite with the board to talk about that very question that you're asking. Like, all right, what is the role of this bakery going to be for the next you know five, ten, twenty years? But what we do very well is inclusion ingredients uh, for our number one customer, Ben and Jerry's Unilever, uh, so that you can enjoy the chocolate fudge brownie ice cream or the half-baked ice cream, or Netflix and Shield, which is the newest flavor. But we also have a very robust uh, e-commerce business. The brownies that you buy in Whole Foods, you can also get them online at Grayston.org. And you have to try the vegan birthday cake blondie, by the way. Will do. (laughs) But... That is what we do very well, uh, and we do that, and we stay focused on that because the demand is there. We are working with you know, premier companies, you know, Ben and Jerry's Unilever, Whole Foods. Do you think they have high standards? Right? Uh, so you you can't lose focus on that. Uh, they've got high demand. I mean, for folks um, in lockdown for almost a year now. People are ordering, and I just heard the um, CEO of uh, Unilever saying this the other other month, that you know a lot of folks are ordering their food online, and they're putting the ice cream and the brownies and whatever else in their shopping carts, and that's how folks are shopping now, And but that's happening all over the globe. Mm-hmm. And to say that we're 
a part of that and we're supporting that with, you know, the folks that we hire is incredible. Uh, but there's also the, you know, what we would call the ambassadors of our organization. And those are the folks like such as yourself who are buying the brownies in Whole Foods and buying the uh, brownies online um, and opening it up and then reading about the story, reading about the organization. That's what we got to focus on. It, it, yeah. Everything that we do, yes, got to run a successful business, but do not lose sight of the mission and why we're here to begin with. Because we could be making, you know, bicycle seats and pots and pans and whatever, but whatever we're doing, can't lose sight of that mission. So other companies that might be in the position of having a great product, but not yet having not yet taken a step on this journey, because there are, there are different paths. There are many different ways that you can go. You have to decide kind of what's important to you. Because you have the corporate America background and finance and yeah. uh, because you have public service in your uh, DNA now and you're here with purpose-driven companies, other founders, other entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, business leaders, whatever position they're in, if they want to take that first step, when they come to you and ask you that, what do you tell them? You know, because obviously everybody would love to land where Grayston is. But that is a journey and it's perpetual. Mm -hmm. What do you tell people about, you know, taking that first step? How do you get into purpose and mission? You know, well, first they got to see if they want to do open hiring. Uh, That's one of the first questions we ask. But it's really, don't try and boil the ocean, is what I like to tell a lot of folks. And we've been talking to the folks at the business roundtable as well. You know, business leaders are problem solvers, right? So what is it about your company that could impact your community? You could be like Chobani and want to address hunger. Grayston has decided on employment. Wherever you're located, who are the key stakeholders? How could your business be a force for good to address a problem? Can't solve all of them. It's just that it's, it's impossible to think that way. But what is your purpose other than making widgets? And can your organization be a part of addressing that problem in some way? Do you know, that's about, that's all that the stakeholder capitalism concept is all about. I mean, capitalism is a beautiful system in terms of lifting people up out of poverty. The spin we put on it is, okay, there is a profit-making piece to that, but there's also elevation of humanity in that as well. And you got to ask yourself that question is how can this organization, whoever it might be, ABC Inc., can elevate humanity. And it's got to be intentional. And you've got to have follow-through. Because if not, to your earlier point, uh, you're just issuing statements that mean nothing. If, if Grayston was just a bakery, could it be as good of a company if it didn't have all the purpose mission-driven at its core? Or is it that that makes it such a good company? Think about why we had the relationship with Ben and Jerry's. Mm. It came together because of a group of purpose-driven folks said, let's work together. There's a book by Christopher Marquis of Cornell talks about the B Corps. There's this interdependency here that we are creating between our companies. You know, ben and Jerry's, Unilever, they're a poster child for social activism. Grayston, poster child for you know innovative employ- employment ideas, working together addressing large (laughs) issues that, you know, not just this country, but this world is going through. You can't have a Greaston without the purpose. Otherwise, it's just brownies. And, you know, you can get, I don't think you can get our brownies anywhere, but (laughs) it's just, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a pastry, right? There's no other higher purpose in it. But to what you just said earlier, it's like you enjoy the product, but you also enjoy what the product represents. And, to me, you can't have one without the other. There would be no grace in it if there was no mission to it. Last question for you, Joe Kenner. This is the Kenner era. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense uh, of the purpose-driven company CEO archetype that we speak with that the organization transcends any particular individual and that uh, they see themselves, uh, I'll call it um, almost as faith keepers, Rather than leaders and CEOs, they're the ones that just sort of keep the promise of what the mission is and the purpose is so that it can stay intact for, you know, future generations to benefit from. 
But this is your leadership era, and it has just begun, and I'm not sure what you did wrong in a past life to start it in a pandemic and with the social <laughs> unrest and I unemployment. I don't know. You must have offended somebody. But, <laughs> but this is this – is, you got through a really remarkably bad year, as you said, with actually some some tailwinds that are pushing you forward, and now you have the opportunity to grow through it yeah. and take it to another place. What would you like them to say about the Kenner era of Grayston? Well, first and foremost, you know, we got through this. Uh, no leader does it alone. Uh, so the team got through this whole pandemic and the social unrest together. So I would say that first. But secondly, and this goes to an issue I had when I was interviewing for the VP job, um, I didn't say that I knew nothing about Grayston. And I was deputy commissioner of social services that handled employment for social services, by the way, and knew nothing about Grayston, or at least didn't appreciate it. Because some people know the bakery, but they don't know all the foundation. And if, even if they do know the bakery, they really don't understand open hiring. I really had no clue. And, but then there's so many people out there that are still in that position. What I truly hope, and it's my reason for being, I think, uh, in this role is to get the message out about what we do. And not only that, see it replicated in different contexts, different scales. But I really want corporate America, small business America, whatever it might be, find a way to make your hiring practices more inclusive. If we've got 10 million people on the sidelines, think of the potential, economic potential that's just waiting to be unlocked. If only we can find an innovative way to get people employed. That is huge. If I could just crack 1% of that, that would be an amazing feat. So it's to see Grayston more known in our own backyard, in our own state, in our own country, in this world. And then to see the model, to see the values replicated in different contexts. That's all. <laughs> That's it. That's it. We're good. Remarkable. I don't Joe, ask for much. <laughs> Joe, I, I, seriously, I can't thank you enough for your time today, but also for uh, being the type of leader that, that we can all aspire to and for being the faith keeper of this really, really remarkable company. As a New Yorker, I, I sincerely appreciate it. As somebody who's you know helping this company chart its own B Corp journey, you give us a lot to aspire to, and I appreciate that. You've set the bar very high, and um, I thank you for your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. Let's do it again. You got it. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.